as you think things that aren't true, that aren't grounded in the real world that we actually live in. You start forming this false reality in your own mind. Now, social constructivism is a real thing. It's a real thing that we do socially all the time. The problem is every time you do social constructivism, you're not grounding yourself in the real world and in reality. So you're moving yourself away from that. But this is exactly the way that all of the tragedies of the 20th century occurred. It was through the formation of pseudo-realities. It doesn't go away until reality forcibly reasserts itself, catastrophically, usually. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I'm welcoming to the show Mike Belcher. He is a writer at apaththrough.substack.com, and he's currently running for New Hampshire State Legislature. I invited Mike on the podcast because I read a very interesting article on his blog called A Resolution to Declare Marxism Religion, and I'm interested in discussing his ideas. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. I am happy to talk to you about my resolution and uh, all the other bills I've drafted is, and so on. Great. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came into this work. Uh, so my background is not necessarily what you would expect for somebody um, to be doing the things I'm doing now. Um, most of my life was spent uh, for, as, as a paramedic first and then turning wrenches and heavy machinery, working on nuclear submarines. Um, I experienced an injury, had a lot of downtime. Um, and as I was doing that, I was tearing uh, deeply into these sort of issues of the day, current events, trying to understand where we were going wrong as a society. Um, and I and I grew up on the sort of hard left uh, side of things. So it's been a very big transition for me to come around to the, my current position um, on a lot of things as far as uh, where I stand politically, philosophically, religiously. Um, um, and that's what, I, that's what I write about. And I am trying to drill down to the lowest level of analysis possible to tackle uh, the issues that that we have going on, um, and that includes my resolution to declare Marxism a religion. Um, so, it sounds weird, maybe at first, but I promise you, it's not something I'm making up. It's actually a very real, very true thing, and it and it goes down to the heart of um, what Marxism is and comparing it to a more traditional American ideology. Um, Marxism has a a very different metaphysic or sort of ultimate presuppositions about what it means to be human, what reality is. Um, for instance, um, we can see on your camera here, you have a microphone uh, in front of you and I can look at it on a screen and I can say, okay, that's a, that's a blue microphone. Well, maybe you see it is, you know, teal or whatever, and that's fine. 
but we can agree that it actually exists. It's right there, and it's objective. But actually, the, the sort of Marxian frame of things from a very, again, metaphysical level would say it's actually not objective. The reality that you see and the reality that I see, that's the, that is where reality is located. It is not in the objective world. Um, and that is what's creating a lot of the problems that we see all around us through these things like what you would call social constructivist doctrine, um, these ideas that... Um, so, so an objectivist doctrine would say that that thing exists, and in order, in order to make things happen in the world, we have to use our hands to bring things into being. But a social constructivist view of the world would say that um, actually we don't need to use our hands to bring things into being. We need to use our words to bring things into being. We need to speak things into being collectively. Um, and that is, that's where you get, um, that's where you get things like gender ideology uh, through the expression of what's commonly known as, or what's academically known as queer theory. Um, it started as gender theory. Um, and that in itself is a, a very uh, Marxist um, space, a very Marxist academic uh, ideology when it gets right down to it. So I hear you talking about comparing a worldview that's grounded in material reality where there's some objective truth that can be discovered through science um, and where things can be measured and where our bodies live in space and time with uh, a heady philosophy that's disembodied. And I talked about this in my interview with Amy Sousa, um, an episode about uh, what was called Emotional Empowerment Through Embodied Awareness. Um, it's interesting to me that you, in your own journey, went from doing very physical work to um, – no longer being able to do physical work and thinking deeply intellectually on these matters and, and philosophically on them, but also coming from this grounded, embodied perspective. Now, before we go further, you talk about Marxism, you talk about social constructivism. I want to back up and kind of define terms because I'm mm -hmm. going to throw a guess out there that much of what you refer to when you say Marxism um, might describe ideas that the the people who hold those ideas don't necessarily think of themselves as Marxist, um, or nope. maybe they they either don't know or wouldn't agree that some of those ideas can be traced back to Marxist philosophy. So can you kind of define what you mean when you refer to Marxism? Sure. Yeah, so let me do my best to break this down in a, in a very short way, because it, it could take a long time if you really go deep into it. But so Marx's philosophy, um, really theology, was based on the ideas of uh, a German philosopher by the name of Hegel. Hegel created these concepts of the dialectic, um, that you have to take these two sort of oppositional notions. He, he dealt in the realm of ideas primarily. So you take these two oppositional notions and you smash them together. So you have a... Um, a thesis and antithesis and you smash them together and you get a synthesis out of it. And he viewed this as a process that was spiraling through history in order to get to a predetermined outcome of a perfected sort of the, the perfect idea. 
the perfection of ideas. Um, what Marx then did was he applied that philosophy to the material realm. Um, but it remained the same sort of dialectic. And you have at the heart of this, this sort of this, this thought that, so you have the, the Trinity, you have mankind, you have society, and you have the state. And the idea is that the perfection of the state will cause the perfection of society, which will then cause the perfection of man. And in that point, man will recognize himself as the creator and man becomes God, more or less. So, um, so in this idea that man becomes God, um, and, and if that's not all of, just like in Christianity, there's a lot of different denominations. So over the years, there's been a lot of different denominations of what you could call Marxism. Now, I use the term Marxism because it's, uh, it's readily recognized by people. I could have used a far more descriptive term, like um, dialectical social constructivism or dialectical utopianism. Um, these are more descriptive of what's actually being thought. But Marxism is an easier identifier that you can put on this. And it's still true enough because they all fall in the same um, and just, realm. Just to reach the broadest number of people here. Yes. Um, for people who think this way, what do they call it? And for lay people who don't think that way, what do they sure. call it? Sure. So um, you could call it a number of different things. You could call it um, in the early uh, in the early 1900s. Um, some of the Marxists from Germany came over and established the Institute for Social Research at um, I forget the name of the university, but it's also known as the Frankfurt School, and they called it um, cultural Marxism. Uh, you could also call it. There was a different strain of this, or a different denomination that came directly, more directly from Hegel than it did from Marx. And it was seeded into America in, I believe, the late 1800s. And this particular strain of ideology was known as progressivism. Uh, because the, the, the actual term progressivism means to progress through history to a specific point. That's the- Toward a utopia. Early, toward a utopia. Now, progressivism mm -hmm. was more geared toward a bureaucratic utopia, so sort of using a, a bureaucracy of experts to perfect the state that would then perfect culture and perfect man. Um, but then a few years after that, of course, the Frankfurt School came in. They, they saw the proletariat concept fall apart, and they decided the best way to go about things was actually to break everything, to break the institutions um, in order to make this world feel unlivable for people make conditions so bad that they felt they needed a revolution toward a utopia. Before we dive deeper into that philosophy, mm -hmm. would you say that there are people who currently would describe themselves as political progressives um, who maybe haven't read Marx or don't think of themselves as Marxist, but for whom their worldview is something you're trying to address in this label here? Um, in, in a manner, yes. Because you, you see what happens is you don't have to study these philosophies to pick them up. Once these ideas become a part of culture, a part of society, it's just the water that you swim in and you take it in through osmosis. And, and I have these ideas, a lot of them still, and I still have to work them out. 
in order to ground myself better in reality over time. And that's kind of been my journey for the last number of years is rooting out these ideas that were actually more based on in social constructivism or speaking things into being, which is, and when I say that, when I say social constructivism, I'm addressing this sort of relationship between uh, social interactions versus objective reality. Because when people get together and they talk about the interactions between people, people want to get along with each other typically. So when I come to you and you have an eye and your position on something is, is way far away from mine, there's a good chance that I'm going to moderate somewhat toward your position just to help this kind of relationship get along a little bit and we can talk and, and be social. The problem with that is if your ideology or if your idea about it is actually further away from objective reality, my moderation is moving me further away from objective reality. And that's the way these things tend to happen as people kind of grow up and they learn. Um, it, it doesn't have to be taught as a theory. You just pick it up and you go through these things. And I, I, I would have called myself a progressive for most of my young life. And I had no idea that the roots of the word progressivism meant that history, and, and that's actually a capital H history because history is like a pagan spirit, is driving itself um, toward a desired endpoint, the utopia. Okay. I think you articulated that very beautifully. So so you've really researched the, the history. You can name the philosophers and their ideas, Hegel and yes. Marx and how it all evolved. Um, so you've, you've researched this a lot more thoroughly than I have. But you're making the point that some of these ideas that we could call social constructivism, ideas mm -hmm. that how we think and how we speak is more true than any objective material reality. That's that that's you're sort of, saying that's that the, that's right. That's that that, that's that kind is of the, become a part of our culture. It has, and we can see that all over the place. Um, we can see it in, and I don't know if you want to dive down this particular hole or not on this episode, but we can see it in gender ideology. Um, and it, it is something mm -hmm. that is inarticulable in a lot of places because it will get you banned. It will get you even hurt in some places. Well, but I think gender I, ideology is a, sure. a good example because it is so concrete because gender mm -hmm. ideology explicitly states that this abstract concept called a gender identity mm -hmm. is more real than sex. So, right. I, I mean, I think that's, you know, these ideas carried to their logical conclusion. I mean, right. it's not logical at all, but if, if you carry out these ideas far enough, that's where you get. And I hear you saying that people who are political progressives can easily get caught in this because we have a tendency to be agreeable and and end up agreeing with things that are more and more disconnected from reality until you get to the point where you hold some view that if you were right. to kind of look at it from a detached observer standpoint makes no sense. Right, exactly. And and there there was a there was a particular philosopher, he was a Catholic philosopher by the name of Joseph Piper. And he absolutely nailed this concept in his very short book, Abuse of Power, Abuse of Language. Um, and it's, it, he coined the term pseudo reality 
and this concept is that as you through these social relationships with people um, as you even through just mistaken thoughts on your own as you think things that aren't true that aren't grounded in the real world that we actually live in you you start you start forming this false reality in your own mind um, now social constructivism is a real thing uh, it's a real thing that we do socially all the time we we and the problem is every time you do social constructivism you're not grounding yourself in the real world and in reality so you're moving yourself away from that um, and not to get too deep into it again but this is exactly the way that all of the tragedies of the 20th century occurred it was through the formation of pseudo realities that lead that lead people down crazy paths like did you know that there was a guy named Lysenko who um, under Stalin decided that they were going to come up with an agricultural system that was communist and they labeled certain plants as good plants good communist plants and they thought that like a proletariat they would work together to help each other so they seeded them too close together all over the country this was commanded in order to produce a communist system of agriculture and they starved millions of people this is a pseudo reality you get these ideas in your head and you create them and they're false but socially it's held up because it it becomes predominant and especially in tyrannical um authoritarian states it it takes hold because in once once it has taken hold it's very difficult to, to get rid of usually it doesn't it doesn't go away until reality forcibly reasserts itself catastrophically usually i can understand the point you're making about how once this philosophy has been seeded in some way it can really run away with itself because if you if you can entertain the notion and accept as fact that something non-material is more real than something that your own senses can tell you then that really opens the door for more and more to unfold and if your motivation for entertaining that idea is that you want to be a good person um if it's that that agreeableness or compassion exactly. and may, maybe some insecurity too that makes you feel like you you need to be an agreeable compassionate person in order to be liked um politeness fear of authority i mean any of these deep drivers of our behavior if they're at play then then it's a path that's ripe for exploitation absolutely absolutely um Oh, I just had a thought and I lost it. <laughs> Sorry, that happens. Happens. Um, Hopefully it'll come back. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Um, but yeah, Pipe, like I said, Piper described this perfectly um, in, in his uh, book, Abuse of Power, Abuse of Language. The concept of pseudo-reality. Oh, that's what I was going to say. So within a pseudo-reality, so you, you, you construct this false narrative of what is true. But then you take morality, so your ethic, and you apply it to that. And it looks in, in it's internally coherent, but it looks from the outside like a crazy thing. Like, like here's an example, and I wrote I wrote something to this effect in one of my one of my uh, articles. If you if you take a, a normal, healthy, functioning society, okay, and let's say you're uh, you're on a subway, 
And let's say a man begins to sexually assault a female on this subway. In a functioning, healthy society, it would be the responsibility and duty of any able-bodied, capable man to stop that, to put an end to it, right? It's just, that's, that's the ethic. That's the traditional American ethic, anyway. But, in a pseudo-reality, where the, let's say, the race of the perpetrator of this is considered an oppressed category and the victim is considered a perpetrator or a uh, oppressor category and this is that marxian uh, conflict theory oppressor oppressed you could easily make the case that actually to intervene and stop that sexual assault would itself be a wrong act according to the application of that ethic to the pseudo reality and we've actually I seen that to chime play in. out yes we have yeah that's what i wanted to say is i'm thinking there are certain people hearing this saying oh come on that doesn't happen but i've actually heard stories directly from from you know people in situations like that where sure they were the victim of a crime but didn't feel that they had a right to do anything about it because of their understanding sure. of so-called power and privilege, even though in that situation, exactly. they were the victim, the other person was the perpetrator. Who cares what race or whatever demographic is at play here? So, I mean, there's an example of a time when a philosophy, you know, a heady notion of who's a perpetrator and who's a victim Trump's material reality in the present moment in which this is the actual perpetrator and this is the actual victim as it's playing out in this moment. Exactly. And, and we've seen this not just in recent times, but historically, we've seen this over and over again. Uh, in relatively recent time, are you familiar with what happened in England as far as the um, there were these rape gangs that were active for over a decade? They... I, I believe the number was thousands of young girls that were raped. This was known to local police. It was reported over and over again. But the police were worried they were going to be called racist if they did their jobs and took the perpetrators in. They allowed it to go on for more than a decade. Take it further back in history. Who do you think the Kulaks were under Stalin? This is the way they decided, well, these are the bad guys. We're just going to forcibly starve them in the Holodomor in Ukraine. I mean, it's just, this is, this is, mm -hmm. you have to, everything starts with ideology. Everything people do starts with what they think. So whatever you think and whatever ethos or ethic and ideology is ingrained in a society is going to, over time, play itself out to its logical conclusions. Yeah, Usually, and those logical conclusions will include th the conclusions that can only be reached by taking the worst human beings and seeing what they would do with those conclusions. <laughs> like not not right. all of us would carry things to those conclusions, but it's right. it's a niche. It's a niche to right. be exploited. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's a statistics game. I mean, you have enough people, some of them are going to push that ball forward. Mm -hmm. That's why that's why this idea that the slope is always slippery for the woke is very true. It's a slippery slope because there is no end point. 
that spiraling dialectic through history has to keep moving toward the utopia. They're going to keep trying to push it there. Mm-hmm. I always like to try to explain concepts from the ground up whenever possible, um, because I like to... I, I like to believe I'm reaching a wide audience or at least that my podcast is accessible to a wide audience. So, you know, there are going to be people listening who have had conversations like the one we're having for years. And then there are going to be ones who have maybe never been introduced to these ideas before. So if we can kind of back up and get foundational, um, what would you say are some of the tenets of this belief system if you were to describe them to a naive observer who's never heard of this philosophy before? So, um, let, let's start modern. Let's start with the, the what we call the woke or wokeism. Um, so wokeism exists in a in a frame of mind or a lens that separates itself from any sort of idea of objective uh, reality, an objective world, and it moves itself toward a ideology where you can speak things into being. Um, so when you say I identify as a woman, that's a real thing to them in, in their socially constructed world or linguistically constructed world. They're not kidding when they say that they're not just, they're not just messing with you. They actually mean that. Um, so some of the other tenets that, uh, goes into wokeism, you have, uh, the adoption of postmodern ideology, um, so postmodernism and relativism, the idea that uh, you can't really say which is better between, let's say, two systems of ethics or um, cultures or religions or anything of that matter. I mean, cultural relativism. Right. Um, so those, those are derived from sort of a postmodern ideology or perhaps nihilism before it. Um, let's see, what and, other... And let's pause there because I want to play devil's yeah. advocate here for a second. I mean... Would you say there's any virtue in cultural relativism? I would, because I think it's so easy to take for granted that our way of thinking, whoever us might be, is the ultimately best or most correct, right? And I I think there's there's something in, let me just make my case here. There's something in cultural relativism that I think is very valuable. Um, the willingness to see from another culture's perspective and some hesitancy to declare one culture or one worldview better than the other. Now, ironically, I think many of the people who think they believe in cultural relativism are actually quite absolutist about the supremacy of their own cultural beliefs. Um, But then, you know, I will concede that if you look at the darker manifestations of cultural relativism, you're talking about having no moral compass. And, you know, then that makes way for, well, genital mutilation is okay because who am I to say it's not because that's their culture and it's not my culture. Right. Right? So here would be my response. Um, No, I think there's absolutely no virtue in cultural relativism, but Hmm. that only means that that only means that you're not allowed to differentiate which is better. You can absolutely look at your own culture and say, wait a second, this other one is actually doing something better. Maybe we should look at this. That's not relativism. That's making a determination as to which is better. Relativism says we can't say which is better. They're all equal. All right. So we might diverge a little bit sure. on, on that particular issue, but 
But cultural relativism is just one of the tenets, so please continue. So, okay, so wokeism, we have uh, social constructivism, cultural relativism. Um, we have this idea of a uh, utopia. Otherwise, in Christianity, you might call it an eschatology or end of the world or end of the current time. Um, and, and it all goes back to this view of history. And again, in, in this in this mind, this is coming from a combination of Dark Ages alchemy, um, sort of mixed with uh, 18th century um, Prussian Volkish superstitions. Um, and, and they had ideas that were what you might call pagan. They have the ideas like pagan spirits, like when the wind blows... We, because we have, you know, some basic scientific knowledge of things, understand the mechanics behind it. But they would have said there's a spirit behind it. There is a spirit that is blowing the wind. Likewise, they had a spirit that was history. The progression of history to a specific endpoint. Now, things have changed a little bit over the years. Originally, Marx had thought, well it's all going toward utopia at some point there was a divergence where they they decided well actually it could go to the utopia or it could go to fascism which kind of stands in for hell for them so you've got utopia which is kind of like heaven and you've got fascism which is kind of like hell which is actually very ironic because fascism is national socialism which is a left-wing ideology it's it's actually a Hegelian um, construct, just people like who are the Marxism most was. Worried about fascism are the people who right. are behaving in the most fascist way. But you describe, I mean, I hear you starting to get into what makes this religious because you're describing the Marxist equivalent of heaven and hell, sure, and the equivalent of a god. Would you say when you when you talk about history as a spirit? Right. Um, and so it has, it has spirits like history that drive things toward a destination. Um, it, it gives rise to um, duties of conscience, things that you have to perform. You have to be on the right side of history. By the way, that, that saying came from the, I, the progressive historicist concept that history is heading in a specific uh, direction toward utopia. And you have to be on the right side of that. You have to help history progress in that direction. Like being um, on God's good side. Right, exactly. Um, it has uh, magic. Again, the, we, th we think of this modern concept of social constructivism that you can speak things into being. A long time ago, alchemists had a similar idea, but they didn't call it social constructivism. They called it magic spells. So it's really the same idea. It's, it's confusing and controlling people through the abuse and manipulation of language. So they have magic. Let me salvage, let me salvage something in there and play devil's advocate again. Mm -hmm. Sure. The power of belief, the power of intention, the power of prayer, right? My understanding is you're a Christian, correct? I am, yes. So does prayer play a role um, in your faith? Absolutely. And it's a fake. So I, I guess we could agree if we if we zoom yeah. out more broadly as a concept that um, a statement of intention, a blessing, a prayer, I think these things play a role in finding meaning as humanity, finding a, a sense of connection sure. to something greater. And mm -hmm. from a psychological perspective, which is my domain, 
I think intention is important. The way that we think, the way that we speak, you know, if if I have a client who's just, you know, going around muttering to themselves, I'm so fat and ugly, I'm never going to get anything done, I say, wait a minute, your words do have some power to them, right? How are you allowing mm-hmm. yourself to think and speak about this? Could you yes. speak to something positive that happened today? Or could you reframe how you handled that situation as reflecting your strengths, even if you weren't successful? So yes. I think we can agree that words and thoughts are powerful, but what yes. you're describing has a level of magic that is um, disconnected from reality. And, and that's exactly what makes it magic is that it, it, isn't, it isn't rooted in reality and it's not actually helpful. It's something that takes you away from reality um, in order to transfer power to another person, more or less. Because the other thing that these, um, this ideology goes back to is the ideology of Hobbes and Rousseau, who viewed basically every interaction between people as a power game. It's all about power. There is no such thing as a mutually beneficial interaction, according to these ideas. Do you think that's a projection that tells us more about the philosopher than about human nature in general? I do. Absolutely. 100%. And beyond that, I I think all these people from Rousseau to Hegel to Marx, I think they actually knew what they were up to. I don't think they were actually true believers in their own ideology. I think they mostly wanted power and they wanted to watch the world burn. You think they were spinning webs? I do. And that's not even um, pure speculation. I mean, Marx Marx was a Satanist. Marx, I mean, if you look back into the history of it, he, his best friend, Fedri- uh, Frederick Engels, described Marx as a man possessed by 1,000 devils. These people were that not. Tells you something. They, they were... And, and this kind of gets you into a, a little bit of the psychological aspect of this. I mean, perhaps you could entertain me by, by stating roughly the definition of uh, psychopathology. Oh, I mean, that word has kind of two meanings because it, you could say psychopath and you would be referring to, you know, sociopath right. basically. But psychopathology more broadly means the pathology or the understanding of illness of the psyche, the mind, right? So right. any diagnosis in the DSM is a form of psychopathology, technically. Sure. So what what I'm getting at here is what these ideas actually do to people, because they mm. separate them from reality in a way that is deleterious or or negative in their daily life, in such mm. a way that it harms them and it harms the people around them. This is little more than the adoption of a psychopathological lens to view the world. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. 
The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You know, when we talk about the idea of words creating reality, and I played devil's advocate and talked about ways in which that is valid, um, it's also occurring to me to add that someone who's truly aware of the power of statements, um, I mean, I, I consider myself somebody who is aware Mm-hmm. of that power. And so I'm careful what I say because I realize that words have power, right? And so um I'm I'm not going to speak things into existence that I don't want in existence, right? I'm right. not going to make up a problem where there isn't one, and I'm also not going to magnify a problem in a way that makes me or those around me feel more cynical or paranoid because I think of my words and my thoughts as influential of my mental health and the mental health of the people around me and who I'm responsible for, whether they're my patients or my loved ones. And so I think as someone who has that awareness of the role words do play in shaping reality, um, that provides me with a type of guidance as to how I use my words and what concepts I entertain that takes me in quite the opposite direction of where this Marxist stuff seems to go. And it it seems like anybody who's really actually aware of the power of words and that you can speak things into being, why on earth would you use that to describe a world as cynical? as the one that they describe, a world that is full of power struggles and selfishness and corruption and where everything is a fight for resources and an endless struggle for justice, where there is no natural justice, where, I mean, it's it's such a dark worldview. And you got to think, it, that's a worldview that shows a sense of powerlessness how could that worldview be adopted by people who recognize the power in having ideas and speaking them? It doesn't add up unless there is a deliberate malintent there. So I, I think we have to recognize that pe- different people are going to have different motivations, right? Different people have different intentions. And I, I think what you're going to see if you were to break down the details of the believers here is you're going to see at the core of it a handful of um, truly uh, psychopathical or sociopathical individuals who understand, who are smart enough to understand the game, how it works in order to build something of a very destructive pyramid scheme out of it. Um, 
and through these social interactions, and I, I've got a lot of theories as to exactly how these work, um, but these social interactions that, as I said before, people like to get along and they want to they want to be friendly with one another, so they tend to moderate. Another thing that people do when they see somebody in distress, they tend to immediately give the benefit of the doubt that there's something genuinely wrong, right? Um, so what you see is when. And I think sometimes this is purposeful. Sometimes it's just coincidental. But when you apply that um, false or when you apply morality to this false world that these people have in their minds, it causes them to react in such a way that it appears to be righteous indignation or frustration or anger. And it knocks people off their emotional base because we're emotional creatures. And it makes them susceptible to lies and things that are not true. And I think that's how they primarily um, uh, recruit or transform people into their worldview. For those who are just listening and not watching, I am nodding so emphatically as Mike is describing this because it's such a real phenomenon. And it's you know, anyone who's been in an abusive relationship and gotten out of it with a highly manipulative person, um, especially if that person had traits of borderline personality disorder and or narcissistic personality disorder, um, probably knows this from personal experience, how emotions can be used to manipulate us, right? That, um, you know, I know from my own experience in emotionally abusive relationships that um, the abusive person would get really enraged over something that from an objective distance you could see is like nothing at all. I mean, one of the most absurd fights that a deranged person ever picked with me um, involved him getting outraged over my having a product in my closet that was intended to clean my mouth guard at night. It was like a denture cleaner in my closet, but his narcissistic rage turned it into a violation of his bodily autonomy because there was a product in my house that was bad for his microbiome or something like that. I mean, th this is how crazy um, a, a narcissistic person can spin something to be. But, but when you're in that situation and this is why I'm speaking specifically to victims of emotional abuse here, you know what it feels like when you're in that situation and someone's really, really angry at you and your body is responding the way you feel as an animal when there's a big puffed up scary person, you really do question yourself. You have that desire to make everything okay. And you you question, what did I do wrong? And And you end up going along with and agreeing to things that are egregious, you know, and by the time that you end a relationship like that, you realize that things have gotten to a point where, um, you know, to use an example, many people have found themselves in a situation where they were the financial provider in a relationship like that and where you could work 40 hours a week to support the two of you and they wouldn't be willing to do something for you that took half an hour. And then you go, wait a minute, 40 minutes, 40 hours of a week of my time isn't worth half an hour a week of their time. You realize that there's become this very skewed power imbalance. But that anger or that emotion, it has a powerful influence. And similarly, like you say, any type of distress, it's not always anger. Sometimes it's tears. Sometimes it's 
suicidality, right? Or yes, or any kind of other big display of emotion. It could be. Um, it could also have histrionic traits. You know, talk about personality disorders. I'm not here to diagnose anyone over the internet, but just to name these traits, the histrionics, the the hysteria mm-hmm. of magnifying and distorting an emotion to dominate the room with it. You're right that this has such a powerful hook on us. And I think a lot of kind of good-natured people who are political progressives, and I agree with a lot of um, progressive principles still, but um, they're they're captivated by these big displays of emotion. And you're right. We assume legitimacy. We want to help. We want to soothe. And that can pull us so far away from truth and from our moral compass. Right. Yes. And um, this this really gets back to um, something you said that was so very true earlier, which is when you speak things, they have power, not just over other people, but they, they influence you. And when you say things that aren't true, it actually, and you say things that aren't true that you know that aren't true, that creates a crack in your very foundation that can and will in today's world be exploited to widen that crack and increase that distance between you and reality. Um, and that's a project that was talked about by Solzhenitsyn. That's a, that's something that was talked about by KGB defector Yuri Bezmenov when he described the, the KGB's um, influence operations against America throughout the 40s through I don't know, 60s, 70s, through the Comintern or Communist International Party. Um, this was they, they, These people know what they're doing. And they actually, they were attacking us with these ideas before we even remotely understood what they were doing. When you say they were attacking us, you mean like psychological warfare? Yes. Um, this, this brings us into this, this sort of modern world of war. And this is something I've been studying quite a lot too, which is the concepts of political warfare, um, where you're keeping so just an easy definition of political warfare would be it exists above the level of normal civil uh, civil politics where two loyal parties to a country are are competing, but below the level of kinetic um, action. That's the sort of realm of of um, of uh, political warfare. And it encompasses things like psychological warfare, information warfare. Um, and these things were being done by against us by the by people like the KGB, the Chinese Communist Party, the Comintern. Um, and they established a significant foothold in America um, in, in a lot of different places. And they utilized strategies developed by people like Gramsci uh, called uh, counter-hegemony, where they would come in and a relatively small number of people would infiltrate a important uh, organization or institution in order to, over time, capture institutions such as media, education, law, politics, government. Um, and this sort of intersected with the progressive project of building out this bureaucracy with which to um, bring about the utopia, the end of history. So it's really funny. It's not terribly funny, but it's interesting that you've got simultaneously within what you might call the left, um, these two different ideas where on one side, you're trying to perfect, perfect things through the bureaucracy of experts, 
But simultaneously, because of the influence of the Frankfurt scholars and some of the others like Comintern, you're trying to destroy the institutions of America um, in order to make people so miserable that they would prefer revolution. That was their that was their solution when they realized the proletariat or workers were actually not revolutionary. They were going to be a stabilizing conservative force, and they actually had to do something about that. Um, so that was their solution, make them miserable enough to revolt. Uh, wow. So how do you see this playing out today in modern American society? So we're in a lot of trouble, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, we are not going to get out of this unscathed. We're going to have some serious problems because of the way things have gone. Um, the These utopian projects who are pushing toward this end state, and again, the masses of these people, may a lot of them may be true believers, but at the upper level, they're probably just using it for power. They're probably not true believers. Um, and that would be a lot of the people in government. Um, so the way I see this playing out is it could go a number of different routes. Um, we could really see a rally against this, which I'm I'm buoyed in this concept by seeing what's happening right now across Europe with their revolt against these um, farm shutdowns that are going to starve a lot of people if they go through. I'm encouraged by stuff like that. However, the American government is not easy to change. We have a very, very loaded bureaucracy at the federal level that even during a presidency opposed to it can continue moving its priorities forward through various means. So that's going to be, I, personally, I don't see the federal government as salvageable. I think the federal government um, is going to have to be choked off of resources in, in, in terms of tax dollars over a probably significant period of time. I think all the real action to improve people's lives from here for quite some time is going to be at the state level. Um, and that's why I'm, I've produced this resolution to declare Marxism religion along with several other pieces of legislation. Um, if I can be successful and if we can be successful in moving, first of all, moving this document into a number of different states, getting it introduced into their legislation and getting it passed, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing by itself. That's going to be very difficult to do. Um, I'm hoping to follow the same mold as the anti-critical race theory legislation that went through, um, but it's going to be very difficult to get this done. At that point, if we can get it in, what that's going to do, because this, technically this isn't creating a law, it's just a resolution, which is basically just a way of saying from the legislature to the other two branches of government, you need to start looking at this issue in this, specific, in this way. So more or less, it's an instruction to the judiciary when lawsuits are brought on this, and they will if we can get it passed, to look at the Constitution and the prohibition on the establishment of religion and a state church and realize that everywhere in government that we have anything equity, diversity, 
inclusion, or any of these other buzzwords that do not mean the nice things that they sound like they mean. Those things are actually the establishment of a state church in America in contravention of the First Amendment, and they need to be removed. And if we can start going down that road, maybe we'll only take minimal um, damage. But there's a lot of ifs in this, and I don't know which way it's going to go, but I'm going to fight as hard as I can to get it done. Because we have to. I mean, literally lives are on the line here. We're, we're looking at, if we keep going in the direction we're going in right now, we are looking at creating, we're already creating famine conditions in the third world, right? We've got the Sri Lanka government just collapsed. You've got a lot of people who are going to starve to death. A lot of people. And that's just one of very many countries in the third world that are already, it's already baked in. There's going to be millions upon millions of people starving to death in the next six to 12 months. And that's horrible. And it's because of these policies that we are pushing. We and Europe are creating a lot of these issues. Of course, Russia is creating a lot of these issues too with their invasion of Ukraine. Um, but we need to do everything we can to start fixing this. ASAP. And if you'd like to get into the whole um, equity, diversity, inclusion thing, we can get into that. I can I can talk about what those actually mean. Um, is that okay? Well, so let's I talk see, about that. I see sure. the need for what you're doing um, because right. I agree. There are these... Um, premises that are being slid past us. Um, so I, that reminds me, uh, I many years ago was a big fan of the work of Derek Jensen. Do you know who he is? I don't know. Um, so he is, gosh, how do I describe him? Like a radical environmentalist. And okay. I was I was a radical environmentalist when I was younger. I was really so was touched I. by his book, um, A Language Older Than Words, is a book that really spoke to me. Uh, talks about this deep connection with nature. Um, and he wrote a series of, uh, well, a two-part series of very thick tomes called Endgame, Um I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or something like this. I, I never made it through. But um, I heard him give a talk. I had a recording of a talk he gave shortly after he released Endgame. And the whole hour-long book talk he gave said, I'm going to lay out the premises that my book is based on, the the fundamental assumptions that you have to make in order to move forward with some of the things I have to say in this book. And the reason I'm yes. going to do this is because, you know, the if you can slide your premises by people, then you're, you're halfway to a successful propaganda campaign, right? Mm -hmm. So he kind of unearthed, I don't know, he, he said some very wise things in that talk that always stuck with me. And that's exactly what I see right now, right? So, Sliding your premises by people, like one example of that would be to say, well, to give an example, um, I recently did uh, an online training in internal family systems therapy, which is great. Um, and it, it was, for the most part, a pretty interesting training. It was a series of interviews with experts in the field. And uh, all of those interviews were conducted by a Otherwise, pretty lovely gay man therapist named Frank Anderson. 
Um, but then, of course, being 2021 or whenever it was that this was made, um, there had to be a section on LGBTQ. And of course, being 2021 or whenever this was made, LGBTQ really means trans ideology. Doesn't actually have anything yeah. to say about the unique needs of lesbian, gay, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. And so I remember in that conversation, Frank, who's a lovely, very agreeable, compassionate, sweet, friendly man, says something like, you know, how awful that must be for people who are born in the wrong body. There's a premise that you just slid past. The The premise is that there's something called being born in the wrong body. That is a premise mm -hmm. that I believe is a religious idea. It's certainly not scientific, right? If, if there's no objective reality in which it can be measured. I mean, we can look at things like the you know, the brain scans of people who experience dysphoria. And we find that indeed, um, there's less activity going on in the regions of the brain associated with the mind-body connection. Now, to me, I interpret that as a case for we need to help the mind-body connection. We need to teach yoga and mindfulness. We need to get these people outside. We need to get them into sports, you know, <laughs> like that might yeah. actually really help. That's how I interpret that. Someone else could interpret that as their mind isn't connected to their body, therefore they're born in the wrong body. But that that's a set of assumptions. That's, in it my is. view, that is a religious belief. And so what I see, uh, I, I see these examples of what you're talking about yeah. where there are these premises that are not based in science, and therefore I would consider them religious, that are just being slid past us left and right. And I see the value and the importance of what you're doing as you're saying Hey, these are these are premises that are indicative of a religious worldview that hasn't been named as such. But um, hey, this is America, and we don't actually make political decisions based on re religions. Remember, mm -hmm. right? So you just said a lot right there that I I really heavily agree with, and I have I've written extensively on, and I have some some ideas about. So let's let's take um, let's take it one thing at a time. Metaphysics. So the me a metaphysic is um, an ultimate question about reality, the nature of existence, consciousness, things like that. Um, so getting into the how we come about with metaphysics, um, everybody has them, right? Yeah, that's the first thing you have to understand is everybody has some kind of presupposition about what it means to be alive to be human, to be. Everybody wakes up in the morning and they take on faith that when they open their eyes, they're interacting with a real world around them. And it's going to be roughly the same as it was yesterday, right? You're going to get the same results when you do the same kind of things. And we operate on these assumptions all the time. And if you, if you ask me, and if you really get into the, the theology and the philosophy of it, I don't think you can distinguish metaphysical presuppositions like that from the idea of faith. So everybody has some kind of a faith because they, they, you have to operate. You, you, you're not, the mind itself is, is disconnected fundamentally from reality, right? You think in terms of symbols and when you view an object, you get an idea of what that object is good for and what you can use it for. But those ideas are in your head. They're up here somewhere, or maybe maybe in the quantum realm, because there's a lot of evidence for that too. But 
they're not the object. So there is a disconnect between your mind and reality. So you have to have these faith-like presuppositions about stuff in order to operate in the world every day. You just have to do it. Now, what happened was over a long period of time, a strand of what a lot of people would call liberalism, although I don't think it's actually correctly labeled liberalism, actually made taboo the concept of metaphysics. And postmodernism really bit into this hard. They made it, they, they completely dismissed the idea of meta narratives and metaphysics and said, oh, those, you don't really need those, they're not real, whatever. And what happened was the denial of metaphysics created the space for a parasitic metaphysic to make its way in under the false name of science. Yep. And, and this goes all the way back to Hegel, who had two types of science. He considered the first one science of reasoning, or science of reason, which is what we would think of as science, right? It's, it's like testing stuff. And ju- I'll just say this real quick. Science, you don't believe in science. You don't have faith in science. Science is a hammer. Science is a hammer that we use to break the world into pieces so we can analyze the constituent parts. It's just a tool. It doesn't lead to any conclusions in ethics or anything else. It's just a tool. When you attach the metaphysics to it, you have actually a faith system in in place. But back to Hegel. Hegel had these two ideas of science. He had the science of reason, which is what we understand to be modern, you know, tool science. But he also had science of understanding, which was a higher level of science that he considered the metaphysics of science. And that's what he was really concerned with. And by the way, this is where all that Volkish paganism and um, alchemy came in, kind of mishmashed together, where he brought these ideas in. And it's the same, that is the science that kind of was the undergirding of Marxism, of cultural Marxism, of postmodern Marxism, of intersectionality, of woke Marxism. It undergirded all of these ideas until it finally gained leeway, like I said, through making space by denying metaphysics. The denial of metaphysics let it in the front, let it in the door. And now we've got it. And it's the water, it's the water we swim in and the air we breathe, and people are just soaking it up. I think you're making an important point that as human beings, we can't entirely escape the religious impulse. There's something fundamental about making meaning in some kind of spiritual way as human beings. And and you can be a person with a very scientific, very rational worldview and understand that. I think it is it is a scientific mm-hmm. thing to understand that because we have a lot of data to support this hypothesis, really. And um, I think most Americans agree in general that it's okay for people to have freedom of religion as long as your religious views don't infringe on someone else, right? It's, you know, I... I think most people have no problem with a woman wearing a burqa if that's her religion, but wouldn't want to be asked to wear a burqa yourself just to make her comfortable if that's not your religion. So I think Uh in general, American culture 
up until recently, like we we largely had this figured out how how to exist as a religiously diverse society. And I think we had good boundaries in schools and workplaces around, you know, aside from ordinary human interactions, like kids picking on each other for having different religions, you know, as adults, most of us have had it figured out that this is a place where we have freedom of religion and you don't have to have a religion. And, and we coexisted and, and we had some pretty healthy, um, ways of talking about, you know, someone could say, well, according to my religion, we do this, or we celebrate this holiday or boys or girls have this rite of passage. And, and, and now it seems like we've taken a step backwards because there's this thing that is a religion that doesn't say it's a religion. And it's it's like so much more dangerous to have a religion that won't call itself a religion and adherence of that religion having these views as part of their worldview that dictate that their pursuit of good and righteousness and their attempt to move the world toward heaven involves this uh attitude towards the rest of us that's that's domineering and that undermines so many of the good things that we created as a religiously diverse society. I, I would agree with a lot of that. I think, as I said before, ideas in society, the ethic and whatnot, it tends to work itself out logically over time. Um, my own perspective on this is, and I, I don't think this is actually particularly you know, difficult to, to show that the, the metaphysical presuppositions that America was set up on, as per our founding documents, the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, they were based in the early Reformation period, which was itself, um, rather, I'm sorry, the early Enlightenment period, which was itself based on the, the Protestant Reformation ideologies. Um, so that is where you got the metaphysic from. And that's also funny. That's where you get the separation of church and state from, because Separation of church and state is not actually in the Constitution. It was something poorly worded in a letter Jefferson wrote. What we have is the non-establishment of religion, um, which Protestants had a very tough time because Catholicism merged with the state for, to form a state church, and that did not work out well. And as a Christian, the Bible actually says you don't do that. That's not a good idea. These are separate spheres, right? There's According to the Bible, there's three separate spheres. There's church, there's civil government, and then there's the family. Those are three separate spheres of governance. Now, as a Christian, God is over all those spheres, but the church is not to merge with the state. And that was actually a Protestant idea um, that came through the Constitution. Where we get into trouble, though, is where you have other religions whose metaphysics are fundamentally in contradiction to those metaphysics. That is where we get to the, to the real problem. And, and it wokeism is particularly bad. Yes, because it doesn't declare itself as a religion and it's really as a, as a meme, it's viral. It is in the water and you just take it up. And it's, it's something that we've been more and more raised in as a society Believe it or not, going back to what the 1920s, um, it's been slowly gaining steam. Um, but but there are other religions where they would have a hard time functioning to their full extent in America, um, just based on the fact that they like we hold very dear the sanctity of life. We don't allow people to be murdered. But there are actually some 
religious ideas that say, well, there's, you know, for honor, we have to kill this person because they broke this uh, social norm. Well, no, we, that's not how we operate because we're based on not those metaphysics. So what we have to have, you don't have to be a Christian to, to be an American or to believe in Americanism at all. You do have to hold dear to those fundamental metaphysics that exist and were created in the Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. Um, but once, you, once we lost those metaphysics, it was only a matter of time before linguistic manipulation changed the meaning of those documents. And that's, that's been, a, unfortunately, a progressive project for a very long time. If you've heard the word living document, living document is a language manipulation designed to get us to see what is plainly written in a, in a, in a different manner that is, they say, more appropriate for the time. But language means what it means. And if I say something to you right now and I mean it a certain way, a hundred years from now, well, I still meant it then this particular way, no matter how you want to interpret it. I mean, it's just kind of the way it goes. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. When I think more broadly about what religions do for people, um, most religions, among other things, have some kind of moral code of conduct that give guidance as to how to live a righteous life. And much of that is it's about minding your own business, really. It's about, you know, what are you doing? How are you conducting your affairs? You know, scrutinize your own actions first. This isn't about judging other people. And um, it's been my observation that you know, a lot of religions kind of discourage the pursuit of power, money, fame, status, things like that. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't people within those religions who pursue those things very much, and many of them use the religions to pursue status yes. within those organizations. But yep. in general, uh, and some religions proselytize more than others. Some religions, like 
Judaism, for instance, I, I know of no proselytizing that goes on around Judaism. It's like very much Jews keep to themselves. They're not trying to mm-hmm. enforce their religion on anyone. Then you have, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, what like Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, a group that would go around knocking on doors where proselytizing is a part of the religion. Um, but in general, it seems like one of the values uh that religion offers in people's day-to-day lives is some guidance for how to live your own life, manage your own existential anxieties, navigate your own relationship conflicts. And um, and that that kind of keeps egos in check. Um, you know, there's that judge not lest you be judged. And in contrast, this thing that we're calling Marxism seems like it there's not much useful self-reflection on how to be a good person in terms of greeting the challenges of the day, the challenges of other people. There's a lot of kind of external focus, like the way to be a good person is to try to change the world um, and a lot of hypocrisy in that. But then there's also, there. I will say there's also the self-reflective component of the way to be a good person is to purify your heart in the form of trying to eradicate racism from your heart and then it go- and then it becomes this right. like navel gazing wild goose chase looking for this elusive you know spot on your soul of some kind of bigotry which right. also isn't very helpful so i i would both agree and and disagree to an extent on on the way marxism is functioning because yes marxism looks outward and every time marxism has any failures it, it is mostly looking outwards to the world at why those failures are happening to identify, you know, people that can blame scapegoating, but a fundamental concept within Marxism, because again, you've got this dialectic spiraling throughout history. Another way to view that dialectic in more practical terms is something called perpetual revolution, meaning you're constantly getting more and more um, intolerant, more and more violent more and more you're you're becoming ever more hysterical about ever smaller things right and that internal purging uh is i mean you you may have seen the the pictures stalin was famous for having people over time um removed by art from pictures because they were purged because they didn't meet the new standard so there is um there is a lot of internal um struggle sessions um, and stuff within, because it's, it's very cult-like the way that it operates. Um, and they purge regularly, but that's actually one of the most dangerous things about them is because they are in a, in a they never stop. That's why the slope is always slippery. It is perpetual revolution. The dialectic keeps moving until it hits a point where reality asserts itself and it takes everything down and you get massive numbers of dead people. Um, but it doesn't have that same kind of what what it lacks is grace, right? That's the thing mm-hmm. that it lacks that that Christian Christianity has. Yeah. It lacks the idea of forgiveness. Yeah. And the the idea that, uh, that of salvation. Mm-hmm. There is no salvation. There is only it, it goes back to uh, what Hegel said, history uses people and it throws them away. Mm-hmm. That is their view of how the dialectic works. Mm-hmm. Men of history get used by the dialectic and tossed out. I love that you brought in the concept of grace um, 
right before you mentioned that word, I was thinking of peace and how in most religions, peace is important. Like, you know, in Islam, there's the notion of salam, right? Or in Judaism, it's shalom. They, they have these words for it that are a big part. And, you know, in Christianity, that that phrase is used, the grace of God a lot, right? And the peace of Christ. Yeah. And um, in Hinduism, it's shanti, right? Like we, the, the major religions of the world all place some kind of value on peace and or grace and mm-hmm. and on finding that state of peace or grace despite the world being imperfect. And, and the idea is kind of that having an anchor to God or the divine or however you conceptualize some higher power is the thing that gives you peace, grace, courage, forgiveness, humility. All of these virtues mm-hmm. come through your connection with something greater, something that is perfect, knowing that this world is not perfect. Um, That's huge. Huge. That, that, is, that is the nature of so many problems that we have, is a utopian pursuit. And it's, it happens on the right, too, especially with the moralizing. But this utopian pursuit of perfection is what we have to get away from. We have to understand that this side of eternity, it's never going to be perfect. We are never going to know everything. We're always going to have some degree of, of wrongness and demoralization within us, either because of an accident or because somebody lied to us, right? We're all, it's, it's never going to be perfect. And utopia is not the destination we're headed to. We, we may not always be going up. It looks like right now we're on a downward streak. That's not going to be pretty. Um, so it's not always upwards. That's not the spirit of history progressing toward utopia. But if you want to go back to what you were talking about a minute ago, as far as the major religions of the world, if you want to game theory this thing out for a second, compare it to, let's say, virology, because it's memes work in a very similar manner, right? So <clears throat> if you're wondering why we look all over the world and we see these major religions emphasizing something like peace or grace, we have to look at how they're spreading and how they hang around, right? So let's look at viruses. If a virus is going to be successful and it's going to get out there and infect a lot of people, it has to take one of one of only a couple different strategies, right? It can be a very low um, fatality rate, right? And if if it is, it can be it it can be fairly low um, uh, as far as how how easily it spreads, right? So if it doesn't kill a lot of people, it doesn't have to spread super fast. And it can be successful in infecting a lot of people. But if it kills you and it kills a lot of people, it has to spread extremely fast. That's the only way that it's going to spread. So if you look at the history of the world and the way these religions spread, if they were not in accordance with reality in such a way as they caused a collapse of society, well, they would have to spread extremely fast in order to do anything, right? And that is how we can view the major religions of the world versus Marxism. The major religions of the world, their emphasis on peace and spreading slowly, typically, happened because they were the non, not dangerous type meme. But Marxism is like the virus that's going to kill everybody. So it's got to spread fast. And that's what it does. It gets out. 
It spreads as far as it possibly can, using up as many resources as it possibly can, and then it brings down entire civilizations. Wow. You know, from a mental health standpoint, um, my work with clients is not about pushing my own agenda or my own beliefs on them, right? My work with clients is about meeting them where they're at and working in the context of their worldview. Um, so I think the people who are finding me now uh, for therapy are people who are drawn to my podcast and blog. So I'm hearing from you know, parents who are concerned about their kids with rapid onset gender dysphoria, um, gender critical feminists who don't want men in their lesbian spaces. You know, these are the types of people who reach out to me now because they're familiar with my work. But um, I still have many clients who found me either before I had any degree of fame or despite whatever fame I had, they didn't know that. They just, mm -hmm. you know, came across me on Psychology Today or what have you. Um, and many of my clients, you know, dating back several years, I've had my own major shifts in worldview during the time I've been working with them, but they don't know that because this is not about me and how I think, sure. right? Um, but, you know, and I am in Portland, Oregon. So of course, a lot of my clients who have no idea what I say on my podcast are quite liberal and uh, project yeah. or assume that I share their worldviews. Now, for the record, I'm politically homeless. I am still technically a registered Democrat. I come from a very liberal background. Many woke people would say I have no right to call myself that, and I would tell them to buzz off, um, <laughs> you know. But sure. um, I don't identify with any political party. I agree with each on some things and not others. But what's my point? My point is that um, – I work with people in the context of their worldview. And this is this is the ethical thing to do. You know, I was taught in an environment where we still had, I think, some decent kind of classic ethics in the field of therapy where we understood how to work with people who had different religious or spiritual or political worldviews than ourselves. And um, and now the, my profession is increasingly being overtaken by people with a certain agenda who are very biased and to harm their clients in the process. But, yes. you know, given that I try to practice ethically and appropriately and I work with my clients on what they want to work on according to the worldview that they have, and I only challenge their worldview where appropriate, where we have the rapport to do so, where it supports their mental health goals, um, I, I get to witness how these ideas are very psychologically taxing, right? So mm. one example being someone who would not report a crime to the authorities and seek help because, you know, they're white and the perpetrator was black, for instance. Um, but sure. there are many ways that I see this kind of navel-gazing self-analysis scrutiny of one's soul for any kind of moral flaw, trying to root out this imaginary bigotry that they're looking for in themselves is a huge time suck, if nothing else. Um, and uh, I'm not, my thoughts aren't coming together very clearly right now, but I've definitely thought about how sure. I see these ideas 
being psychologically taxing for people. And I hear you talking about that, right? I hear you talking about the idea of a mind virus. So I want to invite you to share your thoughts on that as well. Yes. Um, So in in, in a large way, the true believers of this sort of faith system are, are in in a manner victims themselves, right? Because they are, they are operating in the world in a way that is not conducive to flourishing. It is conducive to harm. Um, and this is kind of where I, where I get down to it. And we don't have the time to go all the way down and down the barrel, but, um, I, I totally disagree with any relativistic principles. I think, um, and I wrote, I wrote an article on this a while back. Um, I think to any, to any objective question, there is a right or wrong answer. Now, my reasoning is because we're all, we have imperfect reason. We have imperfect senses, this, that, and the other, none of our answers are going to be perfect. But of any two answers that are not the same, one is going to be better than the other. Okay, so I, I don't, I don't play with the relativism thing uh, because it's just I objectively I don't think it's true. Um, then you can talk about ethics and ideal systems, and I think the way to judge those is to significant matter. You shall know them by their fruits, right? What is the product of this ethical system and faith? What is it doing in the world? Yes. Um, and that I, I didn't grow up a Christian. I grew up a Milton atheist. There's a, there's a reason I found Christianity and it was my search for truth that brought me there, not the other way around. Um, and just to get back to exactly what you're saying, um, the, the way it damages people, the way it taxes people's mental health and physical health. I mean, these mimetic viruses can get in your mind and make you want to cut pieces of your body off. That's how serious these things are. And we're, and we're entertaining these ideas of society, which is horrible. And I've actually written a bill to outlaw this in my state. Um, I intend to introduce, but it's they they are victims of this ideology. And I, I, I want to help pull them out of it as well as fight the ideology broadly. And that is why I'm working on this broad concept that I call uh, remoralization. So Yuri Bezmenov, KGB defector, described demoralization as the state in which you disconnect people from reality such that they could hold it in their hand, they could see it with their eyes, and they would not believe it, right? And I'm working on this process. I'm going to put out a a book sometime later this year, hopefully. i got to get around to finishing it. The idea is that we explore these some difficult topics and we explore them from an objective basis looking for truth and then there's a little bit of a workbook section where you actually write down the truth about something and you look at yourself in a mirror and you say it out loud and you work on your posture and you work on projecting it and you work on believing the truth and regrounding yourself in reality and it is my theory that if this can be done successfully, and I know it can because I did this process to myself. This is how I started getting myself out of this, um, out of years ago, out of this stage of demoralization and misunderstanding. I believe if we can get people to start doing this, I believe if they will start reconnecting with reality and remoralizing, they will find that peace in them that has been suppressed that allows them to get a little bit angry about being lied to 
and manipulated. And they can find that righteousness inside them that when they are confronted with a false righteous anger out in the world, they can respond appropriately with a true and grounded righteous anger that in turn will knock other people off of their emotional bases and make them question this woke ideology that they find themselves in. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Wow, so articulate. Um, I love that you're writing about this idea of remoralization from this grounded place of having gone through this process yourself. Um, it reminds me of some of the work I've done with trauma survivors, like, you know, especially people who have um, been chronically gaslit and, you know, learned to question their own reality, um, you know, working on stating their own reality, um, working on reclaiming, like, I remember, for instance, someone who had lived with a very controlling partner, and we were working on simple things like leaving the dish towel on the counter because he would have thrown a rage fit about it before, and now he's gone, and, you know, unlearning those uh, patterns of fear and hiding and avoidance that come from being chronically bullied. Um, And uh, I've also taught something I call psychological shielding for people who have dealt with a lot of psychological abuse, where it's, it's a technique for logically unpacking the assertions that were made against them by a highly manipulative person and seeing how the reverse is true and grounding your reality. It's almost the opposite of the work of Byron Katie. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the work of Byron Katie is wonderful in its own right. It's a process of unpacking your beliefs and challenging them and questioning them. And that can be really helpful. But when you're the one whose reasonable understanding of reality and assertion of your own basic needs has been chronically undermined and questioned, then you need to learn how to reverse that process and like you're saying, not not to put the attacker on the defensive because hopefully you've gotten away from that person altogether and you know how to protect yourself and you're not trying to engage with someone who would only engage in bad faith in a manipulative way, but psychologically to reclaim your own mental space, you know, working on things like stating to yourself, stating out loud to someone else or writing down I was a victim in this situation. That doesn't mean I am a victim. I'm no longer a victim. I'm free now. But in this situation, I was truly powerless and this is what happened to me and it wasn't my fault. That's a really important process. And I also think you're absolutely right that these abusive and manipulative people and memes um, make you feel defensive when you haven't done anything wrong and that it's important to recognize what they call DARVO, right? Uh, Deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It's an acronym that you can keep in your pocket to remember for, uh, it's a way of labeling 
what abusive people do is they deny statements right. of reality, they attack you, they guilt trip you for stating reality, and then they tell a different story that reverses who's being harmed and who's doing the harm, right? So I think that it's important to have some techniques, whether you're dealing with interpersonal problems on a one-to-one -one level, like an emotionally abusive partner or boss, or um, whether you're dealing with these emotionally abusive memes. And sometimes that includes not not going on the attack, but knowing that you actually have far more of a right in this situation. You would be in your right to feel every bit as righteously angry as this person who has intimidated you with their righteous anger. And once you know that, then you can decide strategically what to do about it. And usually it's to cut off all contact with that bad faith actor. In that in but, that situation, yeah. But when in we're the dealing with- situation I was discussing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, in the situation- Pardon me. In the situation, yeah, in the situation you're situation discussing, you were dealing with, it was a, uh, it could be dangerous. Although it could be dangerous in the situation I'm talking about too. But the the idea would be to be able to enact something like this in public in a public forum, whereas the witnesses, the people watching, would themselves mm -hmm. be knocked off their base to start questioning their ideas. Um, that would be the the ideal way to go about it. Mm -hmm. But what you were just talking about is is very very interesting because I, I don't I don't have a big background in psychology but you know who did have a big background in psychology the people who invented this stuff the people mm. who did this to us they were social scientists right the Institute for social research if you want to go back and read a bit uh, from Herbert Marcuse he described exactly what you were just talking about as a method of psychological warfare to bring about this Marxian frame. So what they actually call it is a critical consciousness. And that's actually where the word woke comes from. A critical consciousness is what they call it. Once they've cracked your brain from this, what they call oppressive viewpoint, and you begin to see the world, according to them, the real way. Now the modern version of that is a socially constructivist structural determinist method of viewing the world. And what that means is socially constructed, you speak the world into being. Um, structurally determinist means that you actually have very little or no free will. Your actions and your everything about you is determined by the culture that you were brought up in, right? So this is, and we, and we all know, I mean, people who have any knowledge whatsoever of modern social science are going to say, this is a nature via nurture situation, as Matt Ridley put it. This is not this is not one or the other. And these people are saying deterministically that this is society that forms and molds people such that there is no escaping their destiny, right? That is basically what they're saying. Um, such a destructive, unhelpful way of thinking. I mean, yeah, we only have so much free will. How much free will we have is very debatable, can't be determined, right. absolutely. But the extent to which you believe in the power of your free will is is going to affect how you utilize the free will that you do have. And that brings us back to your point that you shall know them by their fruits. I think this is really important right. and that, you know, right now there's a lot of the blind leading the blind in the like young TikTok generation of people who are all very mentally ill and who are preaching to each other, but where are they leading each other? Yeah. And if if you want any semblance of peace in your life to bring it back to that virtue, if you want 
the things that any living organism should want for itself that hasn't been infected by a parasite that makes it self-sacrificing. I mean, it makes me think about the cordyceps mushroom and the ants. Do you know what I'm talking about? So, I mean, in in parasitology, right? So for those who aren't familiar, parasitology is an interesting field of study. Um, You might be interested in the the parasitic mind by Gad Saad uh, is for sale on my website in my bookshop at sometherapist.com slash bookshop. But um, parasitology gives us some interesting insights because there are parasites that can make their hosts basically self-destruct or do something that's not in their own best interest. So for example, um, toxoplasmosis. Um, It's a bacteria that cats transmit to rodents that then changes rodent behavior once it infects their brain and makes them less afraid of cats, which of course serves the cats because then the cats can go and eat them. You know, similarly, when I talked about the cordyceps and the I'm pretty sure cordyceps is the mushroom, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, there's, uh, you know, these mushrooms that parasitize ants and make the ants basically give up their lives so that the mushrooms can grow. So if we think about these ideas as parasitic ideas, they're causing self-destruction because they're leading people to do things that are not in their own best interest, that are not healthy for them to support this ideology, this this viral meme of an idea. Um, So looking at, again, coming back to this idea of you shall know them by their fruits, do you want to emulate the behaviors of people who are unwell physically or mentally? Because if you do, then you might want to question whether you've been infected with some kind of parasite that's causing you to act against your own best interest. Every living organism has the right and the responsibility to act in its own best interest, and that doesn't have to lead you to a cynical worldview. It's just information that's beneficial to pay attention to. And you know, as an organism, you fundamentally have a responsibility to look out for your health and well-being and your mental health, the people you love, and that includes your finances and you know anything that's supportive of you having a life that is flourishing, abundant, peaceful, meaningful. So we should examine our beliefs and our guidance systems and the people we're spending time with and allowing to influence us for what is the fruit of this? Where does it lead? Where is it leading me? Where is it leading other people? And if it's not leading ultimately in a direction that causes more peace, more beauty, more of all good things in the world, then maybe you're being sold a false bill of goods. I, I think there's a lot true there. Um, <laughs> the unfortunate thing is, and I'm sure you're aware of how um, uh, viral um, negative emotions are and how they just take off and people latch onto them. And it doesn't help that we've created a, um, an in, how oh, is the word I'm looking for here? Uh, a system of incentives that uh, rewards behaviors like wound collecting um, that turns relationships into pure power dynamics instead of, I mean, it, it's, it, you wind up game theorizing relationships instead of having, you know, mutually beneficial relationships mm-hmm. where, it's the same idea as uh, free markets versus uh, Marxism, right? You've got you've got one side where the pie gets smaller and people are grabbing for the largest piece they can get. You've got the other side where people work together and the pie gets bigger, which means even if your piece doesn't change in proportion to the others, it's still getting bigger. That's the nature of relationships that work well together. Um, and this system that we're dealing with now, this idea system, this faith, um, 
it's not that one. It's the former. It's the one that destroys. It is a destructive system. Well, Mike, I have really enjoyed picking your brain today. Um, as we're nearing the end of our time, is there anything we didn't touch on that I forgot to ask you about, perhaps, that's worth sharing in this moment? Um, uh, I, I know you do specialize uh, a lot in it on your podcast um, as far as the gender stuff. And this plays deeply into it, too, because gender ideology, um, it flows directly, again, as I said earlier, from queer theory. Queer theory is a Marxian or Marxist-like theory that falls also under this same religious worldview that breaks people away from reality. And when you're not allowed to in public society or public um, gatherings or especially where you're at, say something like, a man cannot, has not, and never will become a woman. It's just... I mean, it, it's a fact. We know it to be a fact. Now, maybe you can theorize some, you know, Jetson's future where everything has changed scientifically and we could do something weird. Probably not. I don't know. But as far as I can, can tell, it probably will never happen. It never has happened. And that is something that's grounded in reality. And that's why we have to go back to the idea of treating the mind instead of doing horrible things to the body that I believe are going to go down as some of the worst, most horrendous medical experimentations in the history of modern modern culture, modern the U.S., Europe, Japan. This is horrible stuff that's happening. And I, I personally believe that if somebody has the mindset that they need to have pieces, healthy pieces, cut off of them to conform to their mind... That is prima facie evidence that they do not have the mental capacity to make that medical decision. Um, and that's why in New Hampshire, I actually, I would like to go all the way eventually, but I'm starting with a bill to criminalize severely the, um, the destruction of the sexual organs of minors in the state of New Hampshire. It's child through sexual abuse. Blockers, it's through, genital it, it mutilation. Is. It is. Yeah. It's it's horrendous. And it's it's that we don't have more people out speaking out on it is a shameful place for our culture to be in right now. These are kids. Mm -hmm. Well, this idea that we're on the right side of history that you mentioned earlier right. is there's just so much hubris in that. And there, there, there's such a lack of awareness. There's a lack of thought of you know, throughout history, if there is a right and a wrong side of history, throughout history, how many people have been on the right side of history? You know, usually not more than 50% at any given time, depending on your worldview and what situation you're talking about. And I'm, I'm not a history expert, but then you think, okay, well, what, what are the odds that I'm on the right side of history if most people haven't been? Or the you know, asking yourself the question of what were those people thinking? Not, not what were they thinking? Not the judgmental, but really the curious question. What were they thinking? What was it like right. to be what we can now so obviously see was wrong? Um, and, and I think yeah. there's a real problem when we don't try to understand how these problems come to be. Um, I recently tweeted a, a good thread, uh, retweeted a thread 
on um, a conversation that a teacher has had with his students that I think we we just as well need to have amongst ourselves and within ourselves as adults about thinking about what what would you have done if you lived in the era of slavery or Jim Crow laws or if you lived in, you know, Nazi Germany and you were German, you know, yeah. what would you have done in your if you were in that situation? Of course, you know, 99 to 100% of people say, well, I would have done the right thing even though it was unpopular. And it's like, well, right. how, how do you know that? Yeah. Is that what you're doing now? Is that how you're living your life now? Are you frequently putting yourself in the line of fire to, you know, or are you going along with what everyone around you is doing? How often do you stop to question things? So I think there's just such a lack of insight and self-reflection on um, how how these things work. And uh, right. it's herd mentality. <sighs> yeah, one of the most powerful questions anyone ever asked me was, how do you know you're on the right side of history? And I stopped and went, how do I know I'm on the right side of history? <laughs> and that changed everything for me. I can give you my answer to that if you want it. My answer, how do you know you're on the right side of history? There is no such thing as the right side of history because that presupposes the spirit of history pushing in a direction. Mm. In any given moment, you need to be able to analyze your actions against your ethic. And you need to analyze your ethic against other ethics to determine which is best, which is why cultural relativism doesn't work. You have to determine which ethic is best why it's best. And that is why I believe you actually need ultimate authority. You can't just point to, well, this guy says this and this guy says that. I think you actually need an ultimate point, as St. Augustine argued, um, to ground your ethic in something that is eternal, not, not just fleeting. That would be my answer. And it's incredibly grounding to have that, right? Once you have some kind of root for your ethics, then you know what you're going to come back to, what you're, you know, even if things are uncertain or people disagree with you. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it to people who are afraid. I mean, I, I have a lot of followers who, you know, message me privately saying that they admire what I'm doing, but they're afraid to be public about their views because fear of losing their jobs, things like that. And I understand, yeah. and I'm not here to make any judgment on what an individual should do in their circumstances because everyone has their own, you know, family to feed and bills to I, I pay and situation to navigate. But I, for what it's worth, as someone who's taken those risks, it is really worth it. It is really worth it when you find that moral compass and you know what you're going to use to guide yourself and you know that you can trust it um, no matter what you encounter. It's it's incredibly alleviating, actually. Um, we should wrap, it is. wrap up. This is this has been such a yeah, wonderful yes. conversation. You're so articulate. I love great. your ideas. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm really happy to um, amplify your voice, support your ideas getting out there. So thank tell you so people much for about, having me. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So do you want to tell any, people anything about your campaign in New Hampshire? Sure. Yeah, I, I am running for the state house to be a state legislator, state rep. Um, you can find my website uh, at Mike Belcher, just uh, like it sounds, uh, B-E-L-C-H-E-R, the number 4NH.com. Uh, you can find my writing on Substack at a path through. And I think those are the two best places to see me. You can see me on Twitter. Um, I tweet a lot. Mike Belcher, 14. 
It's probably less interesting than my Substack. Okay. Well, I hope more people find their way to your ideas. I Thank appreciate you so it. much Thank for you doing so much. what you're it's doing. It's great to meet you. Thank you. All right, Mike. Okay. Have a good day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.